1: Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. This is your host, Lillian Barger. My guest today is Kevin M. Schultz. He's an associate professor of history at the University of Illinois at Chicago and the author of Buckley and Mailer, The Difficult Friendship that Shaped the 60s, published by W.W. Norton & Company. Schultz has given us a lively and colorful narrative history that captures the character of two complex men and the times in which they lived. Juxtaposing a conservative William F. Buckley Jr. and the radical Norman Mailer against a liberal establishment brings into sharp relief what the men shared and the source of their conflict. Both men agreed that there was something amiss about American society and sought to build a movement against the entrenchment of bureaucratic liberal control and the threat of totalitarianism. With clashing visions for a new national politic, they were both surprised by the constituency that they each attracted and grew more alike as they responded to the movements they had fomented. Through their writings, public and private encounters, and overlapping networks of friends and political acquaintances, we get a glimpse into the elite power dynamics that shaped the 60s. By attending to a flurry of lectures, debates, parties, letters, and the striking personalities of these two men, Schultz us what was right and wrong with America at mid-century, and the transition from a rules-based to a rights-based society. The relationship of Buckley and Mailer not only reflected the nation's struggles in the 60s, but also captures the continual conflict over the future of America. Here's my conversation with Kevin Schultz. Let me introduce you to the author, Kevin Schultz. Kevin, welcome to the
0: show. Thank you for having me, Lillian. I'm excited to be here.
1: Well, uh, thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. Uh, from reading the book, I had the feeling that you enjoyed re- uh, writing the book as much as I enjoyed reading it. You, you seemed you were having a lot of fun writing this. So, but before we get into the book, tell me a little about yourself, your background, how you came to write Buckley and Mailer.
0: Uh, well, I'm a professional historian but uh, who teaches classes and things like that. But I always think of my job as a historian is to tell stories. I love to tell stories in the classroom when I write books. Um, and then the next step, of course, is to make sense of those stories, to sort of put them in a broader context so that the stories aren't just sort of little antiquarian pieces that we have, but they also tell a broader story, giving us a bigger understanding of the past. So, you're right. I had a great time writing this book because it's filled with these two dynamic figures who just did amazing, incredible, stupid, awful things. There were a million great stories, and so I got to tell these stories one after the other in this book. The re- how I came about it was actually quite fun. I, well, I think it was fun. I had taught the 1960s to lectures to my classroom years and years and years, several times. And so I knew all of the events that went on, but I never really felt like I understood the deep conceptual transformations that took place in the 60s. I could rattle off everything that happened, but I just didn't feel like I could fit it into a story, a broad story of what changed in the 60s. And so I was contemplating a way to understand it. And I was sitting in bed one night reading a magazine And Norman Mailer, with all of his um, child support payments and alimonies and things like that, he had to sell off his his papers to um, a a, a library that was willing to pay for them. And so the the marvelous Ransom Center in at the University of Texas ended up buying the papers. And so after they got processed, they a few of them got put into a magazine. Just some of these old letters of Norman Mailer's. So I was sitting in bed one night reading magazine, reading some of these letters. And there was just this marvelous letter between Norman Mailer and William F. Buckley. And reading it, you could tell there was a sense of intimacy there. You could tell they knew each other. They liked each other. They were playful with each other. But there were also these deep, deep ideas that they were sharing, that they were trying to teach one another, that they were trying to convince each other. They were trying to win an argument. And I also saw that Mailer was positioning himself as a radical on the left and Buckley was positioning himself as a radical on the right. And they both were attacking this sort of post-war liberal center. And they were doing it in such a playful and engaging way that I thought, aha, I've got a way to tell the story of the 60s. I wonder if they were really as good of friends as they seemed to be in this one letter. So I started investigating the subject and sure enough, There were dozens and dozens and dozens of letters in their archive. They had debated each other dozens and dozens of times in big theaters. They had been on television together. They led parallel lives in a lot of ways. They both ran for the mayor of New York City at different times. They both wrote about the other person running for mayor. They did all these marvelous things, and all of it was happening in the midst of this big, long debate about the 1960s. Well, um... In your book, you start off
1: basically talking about how they first met. Um, How did they meet?
0: They met. They were very aware of each other, just like most Americans at the time were really aware of who Norman Mailer was and who William Buckley was. Both these guys had shot to fame in the immediate post-World War II years uh, with really sort of powerful books. Mailer's novels were really extraordinary, especially in the late 1940s. Buckley's commentary on the, on the sort of demise of conservatism and how it could revive itself in the 50s made them both sort of enfants terribles of their respective politics. So they knew who they were. And uh, one of the joys was finding a, a, a quote from the National Review, which was William Buckley's magazine that he founded in 1955. And in 1960, before they had even met, he had called Norman Mailer a moral pervert because of some of the things that Norman Mailer had done in his life. So they knew of each other, but they first met face-to-face in 1962. There was this marvelous uh, event in Chicago where this promoter, this young, young promoter, um, realized that there there was all this energy coming from the youth, from the left and from the right, and they all were sort of attacking the center. You might think of a book like Holden Caulfield and Catcher in the Rye, or the the fascination with James Dean, the rebel without a cause. There's all this anger and angst and anxiety. And so this young promoter named John Golden thought that he could bring together the young right and the young left and have them debate the future. And the guy was really smart, the promoter. He decided he wanted to promote it uh, two days before a huge title fight between uh, Floyd Patterson and, and Sonny Liston. So there's this huge scene where all this masculine environment was going on all these huge sports writers were there everybody was there to cover the fight and guess what's happening two days before this debate between Norman Mailer and William F. Buckley and so in, in 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 the on the stage in this theater they just went at it um, and they had 30 minutes each to sort of just to ar- argue their point point. And then there was a folk band. They had to play in the intermission. I always imagined what it would have been like to be in this sort of folk band between the fireworks of these two guys. And then what I thought was remarkable is that after intermission, they each had 30 minutes to sort of interview the other person, to ask all sorts of punishing questions about their point of view. And... What happened during the debate? I mean, people in the audience were screaming approval, were clapping, were roaring, they were insulting each other. It was all very playfully done, but it was a very, very serious debate. I've, I looked at the transcripts, and it was they were debating the Cold War. They were debating what was problematic about post war American society. They were debating civil rights. They were debating uh, sexual freedom. They were debating all sorts of these major, major things that would go on to become such important parts of the discussion in the 1960s and they were doing it with a seriousness that they realized on stage that they could engage with one another and that they might have uh, somebody they could talk to to help educate them a little bit on what was going on on the other side and so in the aftermath of the debate which the newspaper reporter said Mailer won uh, by a vote of six to three. They actually all took a vote. There were odds. People were betting on it just like you would a title fight. Shortly afterwards, uh, Playboy magazine decided that it was going to publish the transcript. And so over the course of two episodes, Playboy magazine has Mailer and Buckley's names on the cover, and this debate gets published in such a huge, huge venue. So they were going over the the transcription of the debate, and Buckley did something that I think is quite remarkable. While they were doing that, instead of handling it over the phone or anything like that, he decided to call Mailer and invite Mailer and his wife up to his house in Connecticut to go talk business and to have a face-to-face conversation. And so the Mailers roared up there on their motorcycle, and they chatted with the Buckleys, and they had a few cocktails, and they discussed the business at hand. And then really quickly, they... Um, Buckley said, hey, I have an idea. Why don't we forget all this? Why don't we just go out for a sail? So he invites the mailers to go sailing with him. And I I think that was sort of a remarkable turn in their friendship because it meant it wasn't going to be all about just ideas or anything like that. It was going to be about developing a friendship that had these ideas that were central to it. So they went on this three-hour sail, and they got to know each other really well. The wives liked each other. Uh, Buckley's wife came up with a nickname for Mailer and Mailer called her slugger in return. So they have these letters back and forth and it really cemented the friendship between these two powerful intellectuals.
1: Um, these, these two men have tremendous egos. They're huge, huge egos. And, And in a way they're very, very different from each other politically, uh, how they approach the world is very different. But as the book progresses, I see that they become, in a way, you see more and more how they are alike. Uh, and can you, let's talk about their, each of them individually in terms of Mailer's background, Buckley's background, and sort of how they were different from each other because of their background and what they did.
0: Mm hmm. Yeah, they, they- I'm glad you brought that up. That's exactly right, that they came from different backgrounds, but they ended up having a lot of the same pedigree so that they could talk to each other in a way that they understood. Um, so Mailer grew up in a Jewish but not heavily Jewish family in, in New York, in Brooklyn. Um, his parents were sort of lower middle class and then they were aspirational, so they moved up into the middle, middle class and maybe at the very end towards the upper middle class. They were a very um, formal family in a way. They wanted the best for their kids. There are great stories about um, Mailer's mom. When Mailer was born, he was the first, the first born and the first boy. He ends up having a sister as well. And the mom sort of thought that this was it for her. This was the apple of her eye. So she she gave him the, the uh, middle name of Kingsley because he was going to be the king of the family. And that's how they treated him in a lot of ways. When I went to the archives where his papers were, it was very clear that his mom, from the time that Norman Mailer was one or two years old, had saved everything he brought home from school. Every piece of art, every piece of writing. She just sort of thought that this was going to be... Uh, the apple of her, and she treated him like he was something special from the very, very beginning. He was born in the 20s. They experienced the Great Depression, but not traumatically. Uh, Mailer's dad was sort of um, kind of a ne'er-do-well cad, but always very formally dressed in a lot of ways. His mom had all this chutzpah, and she worked a lot. So they, weren't never, ne- they were never really punished in the, in the depths of the Great Depression like some of the other families, like many other people, Americans, were. And uh, Mailer goes on to um, be an exceptional student. You know, he's the top in his class in, in the public schools in New York, and he ends up going to Harvard and getting this Ivy League education. And there are a whole bunch of other Jews I- at Harvard at the time, so he's never really ostracized. And he's got a little bit of the aspirational aspect of it too. He wants to buy a suit, he wants to dress nicer, he he wants to I guess the lesson is he wants to be something more than just a middle class Jewish boy. He feels that he's special and that he can rise above. And his brain power and his writing talent really do allow him to do that in a lot of ways. When he uh, graduates, he gets summoned to World War II. So he goes and fights in, in, in the war at the very, very latter stages of World War II. And mostly when he's in the war, he recognizes the war experience as not a fight for freedom or a fight for democracy or a fight against Adolf Hitler, although it is all of those things. But he's really looking at it as a place for material for the great literary works that he's going to write. So he carried around this little yellow notebook, taking notes in the way people talk, the way the soldiers talk from Texas, the kinds of salty language that they would use when they were in the barracks. And everybody thought he's just recording their experience. And sure enough, when his first book comes out in 1948, The Naked and the Dead, all of his sort of the men that he had been with recognize themselves in a lot of the characters. And so they're sort of angry that he had used them, but also (laughs) flattered that he had used them. And he used all sorts of salty language, just like soldiers use, which in 1948 was a big deal. A lot of people thought that this was pushing too many boundaries. Um, But he said, this is what American life is like. This is how Americans experience the world. And if we don't want to understand true experience, then we're leaving behind great problems and great uh, uh, issues in American life.
1: How did did Mailer become a radical? What is the process by which he became radical in his thinking?
0: Well, it's a it's a good question because I guess I would respond by saying it depends on what you mean radical, right? Because because so they
1: because yeah. they both excuse me, but it seemed like both of them were were. Uh, Mailer was a radical liberal, and Buckley was a reconstructed liberal. So they kind of met in this liberal point, but. Uh, or approaching it from a different perspective. So how did Mailer become the the radical did he become? Did he meet did he have a professor or was there a relationship in his life that sort of or a book that he read or something that happened that actually caused him to have these radical ideas?
0: It's funny, they both would absolutely hate you calling them liberals. Uh, <laughs> that was the main point of their life. Well, because that was their common
1: enemy. That was their common uh, enemy.
0: But they did come from what you might see as a traditional liberal background. That's exactly right. So for Mailer, uh, politically speaking, it was his first wife, who had a traditional left-wing, socialist, communist, Jewish background in New York, and she sort of trained him in politics in some ways. And he began to become uh, he became increasingly radical in his and left-wing in his politics. Um, He understood communism as a great project that had terrible uh, means to achieve were the ends in a lot of ways so he politically was in the left and in and in the time in the 1950s he sort of saw the 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 politi- the the conservative culture of, of politics at the time with people like hoover jager hoover things like this and he thought this was a conservative sort of umbrella containing american life and he wanted to push beyond it and so he called himself a libertarian socialist which is kind of a weird phrase, but he was, as he understood it, a socialist when it comes to things like providing education and infrastructure for giving people the opportunity to succeed and to experience life at its most fulfilling. But he wanted the government gone, this was the libertarian side, when it came to defining how people could be fulfilled. He didn't want the government saying, this is what the definition of a good life is, and you need to live it this way. So that's sort of how he came to this radical understanding, politically speaking. But even from a younger age than that, he was a much more um, radical adolescent, I guess, in some ways, pushing against the, the culture of the time. Um, he had a Hebrew teacher right before his bar mitzvah who loved the philosophy of, of Baruch Spinoza, who was this sort of radical Dutch-Jewish philosopher who sort of saw God and everything and understood man's place on earth as an opportunity to, to live in the bounties of the Lord. Um, And so Mailer just loved this. And he preached all these things at his bar mitzvah to, you know, the horrors of his rabbi. And, From a very – from then on, you can just sort of see the kinds of things that he did in his life as pushing against all sorts of cultural boundaries. He wanted greater access to sex, for instance. He wanted the greater opportunity to use foul language in writing. Uh, He used to put a mattress in the back of his car in college just in case the opportunity presented itself. So he didn't want to miss any experiences or any opportunities. And he felt like Cold War American society was putting too many boundaries on – People and especially men, from having those experiences so uh what you 're telling me you know
1: i think what 's in the book is that he didn 't have a really well thought out let 's say political position uh, that ended up cause, causing problems for him when he got a lot of followers because he really didn 't have a very clear agenda that he a program let 's say he didn 't have a program uh, now, let's talk about a little bit about Buckley. Buckley, I, was, I knew Buckley was affluent, but I didn't realize how upper crust he was. Uh, talk to me about, and talk to the audience about Buckley. His background was just very patrician.
0: Yeah, which is, might be surprising for sort of a Catholic family living in sort of patrician life in Connecticut. And he was sort of the, the prototypical wasp who wasn't a wasp in some ways because he was a Catholic. His father, uh, William Buckley Sr., was an oil man and a self-starter. He grew up really poor in Texas where his family moved because they had a a sick uh, parent and so they needed to go for the dry air. So he lived in Texas. And it was right during the oil boom uh, in Mexico. So Buckley, Bill Buckley Jr., his father went down to Mexico. And first he was a lawyer from the University of Texas and he hung a shingle there trying to negotiate land deals with the Mexican people and the giant American oil companies so that they could access all this oil in Mexico. And then eventually he decided to go out on his own. Uh, He has this incredible sort of story about how the Mexican Revolution affected him. He ended up getting kicked out of the country as a revolutionary. He was trying to import weapons because the Mexican government was trying to eradicate the Catholic Church in Mexico. And here's this, this staunchly Catholic man so he was trying to support the counter revolutionaries. He ends up getting kicked out of Mexico. He loses all of his wealth or large portions of his wealth, and he ends up having to borrow great amount of money, great amounts of money for a long period of time from Wall Street bankers until eventually he finds oil once again in Venezuela, and then the family is restored again. What's interesting about that background is not only the mass, the the, the huge amounts of wealth. That, that Buckley Sr. ends up giving. I mean, Bill Buckley Jr. is raised in a house that has 114 bedrooms. It's called Great Elm. There were six pianos there. They imported tutors from all over the world. They were speaking French and Spanish and English. And it was just this remarkably rich household. And yet contained within it was Buckley Sr., who took sort of two lessons from his life's experience. One is one that he learned in the Mexican Revolution, that government run amok is going to take wealth from the wealthiest, and it has the power to do whatever it wants to do to its citizens. So Buckley Sr. and Americans in general needed to be worried about too strong of a federal government. And the other lesson that he learned is when he came back to the United States it had to constantly be begging these Wall Street bankers for money, he really began to hate these bankers who seemed to earn their money off other people's interest, who didn't really work hard to make a living. He sort of had this ire for, for this sort of upper crust patrician elite in a lot of ways. So even though Buckley Jr. is raised with this patrician environment, going to Yale, going to all the best prep schools, having this marvelous education, he still carries with him both a strong libertarian streak from his dad and a hatred of the upper crust in the United States. And both of these things really come to form a lot of his politics.
1: So here you see this connection here between Buckler and Mailer, that they do both have some sort of a libertarian streak in them.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. Right? Absolutely. Okay. And it, it reflects itself differently, though. Um, right. Yes, it does. Yes, exactly right.
1: Now, they have a common enemy. Yes. And the common enemy is what really brings them together. They're both trying to bring down what they think is the status quo, uh, what Mailer calls the rules, which uh, you talk we refer to as the rules. Uh, unpack that for, the, uh, for our audience. What is it yeah, that so, they're going after?
0: Yeah, so one of the things that I, that I try and do in this book is figure out I, what I tried to do in this book was, okay, you've got this young radical from the left and this young radical in the right, and they're both attacking the middle. Well, what is it that is in the middle? Uh, what is what comes to be called post-war American liberalism? What is this, the vital center, center that Arthur Schlesinger wants to hold on to? And if you read the books of the people of the time, there are a lot of sort of – it's a lot of rhetoric. It's a little bit hard to figure out what's at the nuts and bolts of this. And so I unpack it uh, with, a, with as a cluster of three ideas, really. I, I imagine it to be this triptych painting. And in the middle of the of the triptych, the the center painting is this belief, this affirmation in the idea of rational thought that the experts and the bureaucracy will be able to solve all of our problems. And if you look back at the New Deal, that was the experts coming over and redistributing wealth. If you look at how we succeeded in World War II, there were all sorts of uh, experts coming in and and dictating what went where the war material went here and, and there and all sorts of things like that. And so the experts had really proven themselves to be very successful. And so when you get into the post-war society, there's this belief in uh, rational thinking will solve all of our problems. And one of the great examples that I love is the creation of the Eisenhower Interstate Expressway that we still live with today. Uh, And basically, it's just these lines of, of, of roads, highways that go east and west and north and south. They grid up America in sort of rough paths, and they don't care if there are towns off to the side on either way that people live by. That's irrelevant. They want the most efficient, if banal, means of transportation. And this sort of prioritization on the experts and rational thinking was at the center of post-war thought. thought. So that's the middle of my triptych. And off to the right-hand side, I would say there's this very friendly corporate capitalism where corporations pay large amounts of taxes to the federal government, but the federal government pays them in kind by bolstering the income when when there's a sluggish period in the economy, Um, especially in the defense industries. You see this happen, and there's this general sense of, well, as they say most famously in the 1950s, what's good for General Motors is good for America and vice versa. So there's this very sort of kindly relations between corporations and the state and then on the on the left-hand side of my triptych, so you've got rational thought in the middle, you've got corporate capitalism on the right, and on the left are all these sort of cultural codes, which, which as you mentioned, are, I call the rules. And that has to do with all the silly stuff we laugh at when we see Leave it the Beaver. It has to do with how high a women's hemline could be. It has to do with the rules of language. You always address another adult as a mister or missus, even if you are an adult. It has to do with whether a, mare, a man cuts his hair. It has to do with all sorts of rules about society and of course embedded in those rules are a hierarchy of who's right who's wrong how you achieve in society by following the rules and how you fail in society by not following the rules and by and large this system this sort of tripartite collection of ideas worked out really well in part that's because i have the cold war serving as the frame the gilded framing around so if you go outside of the norm if you protest the friendly corporate capitalism, you're risking the sort of Cold War uh, um, battle that the United States is fighting. But it also worked for another reason. Uh, Everybody today is talking about income inequality. And if you look at the graphs on when the American society was, uh, the wealth in America was most equally distributed, it's in the 1950s and 1960s. So these, these, this sort of tripartite structure that I just laid out may have been restrictive in a lot of ways. Corporations may have been uh, being having to pay extra taxes. There might have been an overly um, high devotion to the bureaucracy and rational thought. But in a lot of ways, it was working for a lot of people. So Buckley and Mailer coming up in this environment – they chafe at different parts of this post-war liberal establishment. Buckley particularly, as I mentioned about his father, particularly chafes at the high taxes, particularly ta- chafes at um, the, the sort of sense that the bureaucracy is going to be able to solve all of our problems. He wants freedom of the individual in, uh, in those regards. And Mailer, coming from a different perspective, he chafes at the rules. He chafes at ideas about language at rules about what a man and a woman are supposed to do and how they're supposed to interact with each other. He doesn't like the bureaucracy telling them what the good life is either. So they both really start protesting this liberal center. Um, There's a great line when Playboy published the transcript of the debate that we just talked about, where on the cover of the magazine it said, the liberal versus the conservative, Mailer versus Buckley. And Mailer writes a letter to the editor saying, I don't care what you call me. You can call me a socialist. You can call me a radical. You can call me any number of a million things. But whatever you do, don't call me a liberal, right? Because they both hated this liberal center.
1: Now, they were very prolific in the 1960s. They're writing. They're debating. There's just They're really producing a lot of ideas. And all of a sudden, each of them find themselves with a following, And what was just so humorous was that the following that they got was not what they expected, or they were sort of surprised at what they were able to foment with their ideas. So unpack that for us.
0: Yeah, so what's interesting is the sort of radical on the left and the radical on the right attacking the center. By the early 1960s and by the middle 1960s especially, it really seems like... Their ideas are catching on in a lot of ways. I mean, Mailer looks at American society in the early 1960s, and he sees SDS, Students for Democratic Society. He sees Betty Friedan challenging the rules. He sees the civil rights movement challenging American society. He sees all this energy coming from the left challenging post-war liberalism, and he, he sees it moving in a million different directions. He wishes that he had the capacity to harness it. It turns out nobody in America had the capacity to harness all that energy on the left. But he really sees him as one of the early uh, proponents of all of this cluster of ideas. And so he's terribly excited about the future, except for what he sees coming on the other side. Because at the exact same time all this is going on, you get all this activity from the vibrant right wing. This is, of course, the years most famously when Barry Goldwater gets the nomination, 1964, for the Republican Party. Standing as this sort of Buckleyite conservative in a lot of ways. And this is when the Young Americans for Freedom, the sort of counter to the SDS, gets born. So there's all this young, active, uh, youthful activity coming out of the right at the same time. So in the middle 1960s, they both see their ideas and the things that they tried to articulate in the late 1950s and early 1960s as really coming to fruition, as people following them, as people sort of energized by their ideas. And in a lot of ways, especially with Buckler, with Buckley, less so with Mailer, but nonetheless still with Mailer, all of these people sort of look at Buckley and Mailer as intellectual leaders of their movements. Um, the biggest speech Mailer ever gets is an anti-Vietnam War speech in UC Berkeley. Um, so I mean, sort of, and, and and the students there adopt him to be their articulate voice. And so, I don't. I think this happens with all parents: is that your children don't really turn out like you expect them to. So, even though they they were energized by what they saw as their their sort of youthful uh, ideas coming to fruition as the nineteen sixties progress, those youthful rumblings go in directions that they can't control or don't necessarily agree with.
1: Now, Buckley in nineteen sixty four was very. Reluctant to say the least about Goldwater, he didn't feel that uh, this move, this new uh, conservative movement that he saw within the Republican Party, that it was time yet. It was still immature. Um, it, why is that? Why did he feel that way? Uh, was it because he thought that the ideas had not yet been really well developed? That it was premature because they weren't ready.
0: Well, there were there were two reasons. One, he didn't really think Goldwater was all that smart in general. He didn't think that Goldwater uh, had the intellectual capacity to be the president of the United States. He um, knew that somebody had ghostwritten Goldwater's famous book, Conscious of a Conservative, and he wasn't sure if Goldwater had ever really read the book. So he had some general concerns about Goldwater uh, as a candidate. But more than that and more, more problematic than that was he likened it to sort of seeding a field and the needing rain to come and the plants to rise up. And he thought that in 1964, he and the National Review and this budding conservative movement, the, the um, Young Americans for Freedom and all these youthful conservative clubs that were popping up. He didn't think that they had seeded the field enough yet in order for a true what he called a true conservative candidate. To take helm, he wanted somebody to be more libertarian, somebody to be more strongly um, sort of anti-liberal, and he didn't think that there were enough conservatives to support that position yet.
1: Uh, what who? What thinkers did he was he reading? Uh, conservative thinkers. Was he reading? Was he? Did he have a model?
0: I mean, he was very well read, very familiar with Hayek, very familiar with. Um, some of the early Milton Friedman works. He was very familiar with a lot of the conservative economists. He was also um, uh, aware of some of the the writings going on in Europe at the time, which were equating sort of the rise of fascism to the growth of of an out-of-control bureaucracy. And it's funny because he sort of respected all of these, these writers and it sort of prevented him in a lot of ways from seeing himself as a true intellectual. He thought that that a, there were people out there who were smarter than he was that were writing better books than he could. And so he saw himself as a salesman for ideas.
1: Yeah, that's what I noticed about him, that he really actually didn't formulate a lot of ideas on his own. Uh, he basically was just... Uh, an advertisement for a particular conservative point of view and didn't really, he was not really the idea guy.
0: Right. And his talent was to take the big ideas. He had, he had many talents, two of them on this question, uh, or relate to this question. One of them was to take the ideas and to articulate them in a way that was kinder and gentler that could be interpreted to be not something that was necessarily mean-spirited towards the poor and downtrodden, towards Afro- African-Americans during the civil rights movement, and yet give, make him sound like sort of a Yale political philosopher. He was very good at that. And the other thing he was very talented at was taking these big ideas and coming up with policy suggestions that would maybe sound a little bit crazy, but you know, what are intellectuals for in some ways other than to come up with creative solutions out of thorny problems, and so he would occasionally recognize and point out these, these ideas.
1: Let's uh, talk a little bit about, we skipped this. Uh, Buckley's view on the civil rights movement and his, his view on race. He, now we're looking at it and we just like, wow. But at the time, uh, it had a lot of legs. I mean, what he was saying was really playing with his audience. Unpack yeah, that for I- me.
0: I wish they didn't have legs still today, but I'm not sure that they don't. Yeah, Buckley was, his mom was Southern um, and and in, to her bone in a lot of ways. And so he was sort of raised with sort of a traditional Southern view on racial minorities. And he carried this with him throughout his life in a lot of ways, especially in the 1950s and 1960s when the civil rights movement was really chugging along strongly and what's so frustrating to me about Buckley, there are lots of things just as there are with Mailer as well. I should point out, but he could have taken a very libertarian argument on civil rights, which is that the government shouldn't mandate segregation. It shouldn't, there, there should be no laws redlining people to live in certain areas or not. And in fact, those laws should be, should be illegal. Um, and instead of sort of grabbing onto that true libertarian argument, what he does is he takes two sort of nasty arguments and he dresses them up for sort of mainstream consumption. The first argument, which you'd hear a lot more about in the 1950s than you hear about today, although I would I, – I would, it, it's still around, is that quite plainly black people in America weren't civilized enough to have civil rights. They hadn't been educated enough, they weren't articulate enough, they didn't know how to represent themselves politically, and so therefore they shouldn't be allowed to vote. And he actually quite strongly believed that poor uneducated white people shouldn't be allowed to vote either. He, was sort of, he would often say this and people would interpret it as a joke, and he said, you know, the problem with, with, not enough, with not allowing black people to vote is not about black people voting, it's that there are too many stupid white people voting. And everybody would laugh, but he didn't know what the joke was because he genuinely felt this in a lot of ways. Um, that said, there were, there's nobody trying to prevent poor white people from voting. And yet there's this whole awful segregated infrastructure preventing black people from having basic civil rights. So what his, his sort of first gut argument was black people aren't civilized enough yet. And this, went, this did not just serve uh, for American, African Americans. But also in South Africa, it was sort of a worldwide phenomenon for the decolonization movements that are going on throughout Africa. So that was one argument, not ready for civilized living yet. The second big argument, and here he fell back on the work of of Daniel Patrick Moynihan, uh, an early adopter of Beyond the Melting Pot and of the Moynihan Report, is that... For some reason, and he didn't bother to speculate as to why, although occasionally he would, black people hadn't lifted themselves up in the same way that poor white ethnic groups had. This is called the bootstraps argument. My family pulled itself up from from poverty by pulling itself up from the bootstraps, and then we achieved middle-class living. We lived this life where we sent our kids to school. We made sure they went to college. We turned them into good people citizens, and they now are living a good middle class life. Hey, over there, African American community, why don't you do that yourself? And of course, Buckley was deliberately blind to a lot of ways in which the law and the federal government and state governments had given a helping hand to poor white Americans. I mean, if you look at the New Deal, for instance, which was one tremendous avenue in which white people were able to move to to go up in class Uh, those were restricted by race. Or you look at the GI Bill and the structure of higher education in American life or the housing loan programs. Well, black people might have access to some of these things, but there are certain neighborhoods that they can't buy houses in. And that's where a lot of Americans' wealth lies in their, in their house. Or they don't have access to the same, uh, uh, educational opportunities. So he's being very blind about the structure of racism that had lived in America for at least the previous hundred years when he's writing. And then you talk about the slave times before that. So he uses these two arguments and he dresses them up in a way that a lot of Americans who are resisting the civil rights movement can tap into and sound like Yale-educated philosophers and not sound like bigots who are opposing the civil rights movement.
1: Now, to be fair, uh, Mailer... On the other hand, uh, which you emphasize more, on with Mailer, uh, who is a sexual libertine, um, married many times. How many, how many times was he married? Yeah. Six. Yeah. Times. Okay, he really runs into a problem he didn't realize he was going to run into, which was the issue of, of feminism, uh, gender, and you know Kate Millett's attack on Mailer. Uh, he was totally like surprised by that. T- talk about that.
0: Yeah. He was stunned by the rise of the women's movement because he didn't understand it in a lot of ways. He saw himself as, as you say, a sexual libertine, as someone who's advocating free love, as someone who wants to tear down the boundaries between marriage and sex, who wants to sort of live a more free lifestyle when it comes to sexual relations. And in his mind... He interprets this as being a feminist. I love women. You know, he says many times without necessarily being in on the joke of what that means. And it's funny how this comes to bite him. It's in the late 1960s, 69 or 70. uh, He gets a call from Time Magazine, one of the editors, and they're doing a report on the women's movement, on on the feminist movement in, in the early 1970s. And he sees himself as a leading in the leading vanguard of this movement for sexual liberation. And so he thinks that he's going to be the center of this article. And so he gives his views to the editor of time magazine. And then he sort of wonders who else is going to be mentioned. And all these writers, all, the editor mentions all these writers who are all these feminist writers who Mailer doesn't necessarily know and one of them, of course, is Kate Millet. And he says, well, wh- why are you focusing on them? I'm the one who's advocating this, this free love movement, this, this tearing down the boundaries, the rules. And they said, well, you should know we're calling you because you're their enemy. And he's stunned by this. And when Time Magazine comes out three weeks later or two weeks later, he's shocked that he's not on the cover, but it's Kate Millet. Being on the cover of Time magazine, and he's the enemy. And so he goes and he reads her book, and she spends almost a whole chapter, somewhere between 25 and 30 pages, just talking about Norman Mailer's novels and the role that sex plays in them, and how they're all premised on sexual domination, on the male controlling the female, on a man living this free sex, uh, this life of free sex without any ramifications. Um, and how this is embedded in the power structures of American life, with men on top, right? I mean, he, and she's trying to tear it down, and all of a sudden he says, "Wait a minute, I'm the enemy." He's just
1: an, such an amazing example of exactly what the feminists were talking about. He got he, he was he believed in free free love, but he got he gets married six times, which is a puzzle to me. Why bother? And then he and then he produces all these children he ends up having to pay for all these children, it doesn't ever stop to think about the fact that the women are the ones who are having these children. I mean, it's just, there's, his, his life is just a perfect storm in terms of the feminist ideas. He's a, you know, a perfect example. Now, but, uh, you don't talk that much about gender with, uh, with Buckley, but what I noticed with Buckley was for a conservative, he seemed to be very, uh, he was not uptight about sex, I mean, he's he's writing or he's being profiled in uh, Playboy magazine. Uh, this is not the kind of what we think in terms of cultural conservatism.
0: Yeah, in some ways. I mean, he's traditionally, he gets married, and he's married to one woman his whole life. Um, and he's very happily married, although like all marriages there are certain fights, and because he's such a public figure, we know a little bit more about those fights than we do other people, for better or for worse, but it's not this sort of idyllic life. And I mean, it is, and it isn't, just like every marriage, I guess, in some ways. But yeah, in some ways, he because, uh, I mentioned earlier in our conversation, he um, really despised the sort of WASP elite in a lot of ways, and he really rejoiced in the ability to thumb... Thumb, to stick his thumb in their eye in a lot of ways, and so it was with his politics. He wasn't ever in a, he never embraced free love in a lot of ways. He sort of had a libertarian stance on it towards it. you know if that 's what you want to do in some way it, then, then, then why should I be someone who stops you as long as it 's not tearing down some of the traditional structures like marriage, but I, shouldn't, I can't force you to get married in some ways. The, the other part that's really interesting about Buckley is his attitude towards the 60s. He was this enfantero terrible who sort of wanted to provoke people, and when the 60s come, he's really energized by it. He sort of sees the long hair on men. He sort of sees women challenging the traditional role. He sees them sticking their thumb in the eye of the traditional society, and he can't help but be excited by it. So he, you know, in the late 1960s grows his hair slightly longer. He he buys a motorcycle and he rides throughout the streets of New York City on this motorcycle. The people that he invites onto his television show, firing line, he's not afraid of them. He invites radical feminists, he invites Black Panthers on there. He wants to hear their voice. He wants to hear their struggle. He wants to talk with them. Uh there's one there's one great story where he says he he listened to the Beatles for the first time And he absolutely hated them. He called them anti-music. He thought they were just disgusting. And he was a trained classical pianist who was not quite up to snuff to be a classical pianist, but pretty darn good. Um, And then after a couple years, he realizes just how influential the Beatles are. And so he makes a concerted effort to get to know the Beatles' music. And he said, well, I don't have to like it. But it's my responsibility to understand what it is that so many people find in them that's powerful. And so there is this deep intellectual curiosity that he engages with and that he embraces in the late 1960s. He doesn't love it all, but he's energized by
1: it. So in a way, this is what I'm talking about. Mailer and Buckley, are, they're both liberal-minded. They are, they are open to inquiry and thinking through things and uh, op- oppositional ideas. They're not, uh Buckley is more, more like that than we think of him being. He wasn't just rigid, uh, don't tell me anything new. He was open to all kinds of things. And I think that that is really a basis for a classic liberal position.
0: Yeah, you keep using the word liberal and I keep getting confused because it has so many different meanings. Right, yes.
1: And most people are thinking in terms of the liberal uh, 1950s uh, liberal consensus and that body of thought. But liberalism has a very long history that none of us can really escape.
0: But sometimes people use the word liberal as just open to something new in some ways. And I think what really excited me about their friendship I mean, it was very nice that they came from these polar different perspectives. They had enough common ground that they could talk to each other and attack the center at the same time. They had a common background. Um, They were both, you know, white Ivy League educated males who were pretty well off financially. Um, They were raised in the same era. But this point that you're talking to, I found so beautiful, so remarkable, so special is that they both were open to learning. Mailer more than Buckley in some ways, but nonetheless, as, as we just talked about, Buckley too. They both looked at their friend as maybe somebody who had some answers to questions that they had been asking but hadn't found yet. They both were willing to discuss with each other, not for ticky-tack political points or just to win a debate, and then you know th- then everybody goes on their way. But they really wanted to debate each other to figure out the best way that Americans could live in, in today's society. They have this generosity of spirit um, that I saw over and over again in their letters. I mean, their letters almost always end. They, they'll debate back and forth about Vietnam, about women, about civil rights, about Cold War, about any of these major issues in the, in the 1960s. And they'll, you typically say something along the lines of, well, no matter what we should do is we should get together and have a long conversation one night where you can disabuse me of what's you know, wrong in my thought, and I'll tell you how to rationalize your thought a little better, and we'll both grow from this experience. And they say this over and over again, and I see that engagement. I'm not sure we have that many of those kinds of engaging people today who are willing to drop the political battle for the sake of learning. And these two guys, and especially Mailer, but these two guys had
1: it. And this is, what I, this is what I noticed. I thought, wow, we don't have this. Where do we see this modeled, uh, today? It's, it's very rare, if at all, or probably it's because it doesn't show up on television. But, uh, I want to get back to the, the talk about the, the followers. Buckley was really sort of put off by the fact that he was attracting angry white working class people who were supporting him, especially when he was running for mayor. Uh, and Mailer at one point said, when he looked at uh, the violence that was breaking out in 1968, and on page 250, you say Mailer surveyed the terrain again and decided he did. This wasn't his battle. There were not, these were not his people. They were too. They were too empty of ideas, too woozy, too theatrical. This was the politics of emotion, and from the left, but about to confront the politics of emotion from the right. He wanted no part in it. He, he didn't. He saw this as just an eruption of of emotion, and he was appalled. I thought that that was really interesting, and I think that Buckley also saw the same thing on the other side uh, with angry white working-class people. Uh, What do you make of that?
0: Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I mean, I had said earlier that our children never turn out quite like we expect them to, and that's exactly the case here in a lot of ways. Buckley had these ideas that were premised on libertarianism, get the government off my back, but also traditionalism, where traditional marriage, traditional structures of authority, traditional institutions needed to be honored somewhat in order to have a stable society. Um, and what both of them kind of find by the latter, later 1960s is that people had sort of taken their ideas, especially younger people, and molded them in directions that neither Buckley nor Mailer felt quite com- comfortable with. With Buckley, he sees this sort of anger as sort of dangerous and wanting to push back against all sorts of tradition, and most importantly wanting to push back at the commonweal as a whole. And he sees this rise of extreme libertarianism and he grows very concerned about what that means for the life of America And so he looks at these people, not just the angry white working class who have their catalog of of frustrations, but generally the more uh, rising anti-government sentiment that's going on in American life. He gets worried about the life of the United States. And almost an identical thing happens with Mailer. He looks at the youthful radicals, the hippies, and the counterculture, and the anti-Vietnam War protesters. And as they meld together in the later 1960s, he sees them as willing to sacrifice what is good and great in American life, and he thinks there's a lot that's good and great in American life. Um, he sees them as willing to throw the baby out with the bathwater, to, to use that language. What he grows concerned about is the language that those on the left use all the time, which is everybody should just do their own thing. Do your own thing. And he hears that language, and he says, you're giving up on the common wheel." you're giving up on the American project. You can't do that. You need to keep fighting within America. You need to keep challenging America to rise up to be a better self. And by moving out and focusing on just individual self-satisfaction, by moving on to a a, a stronger cultural libertarianism, we risk what is all, all that is good and great in the United States. So both of these guys sort of want to reform the United States, they want, they want something of a revolution in, in aspects of the American life. But when they see the sort of more radical wings of their thought take flight in the latter 1960s, both of them recoil and realize maybe they had made mistakes.
1: Now, you talk about how uh, they were at this cusp when America went from a rules-based society to a rights-based society. This, is this what made them superfluous? Did they become superfluous or sort of, or intellectuals generally superfluous when you went from a rules-based to a rights-based?
0: Well, a couple things. I I don't think they went, they they became quite superfluous. I think that Buckley was relatively helpful in getting Ronald Reagan elected in 1980, and he was a strong voice uh, of conservatism throughout the 80s. But I think what happened in the 70s is it took both men a significant amount of time To recalibrate, I I earlier in our conversation delineated the sort of tripartite structure of American postwar liberalism and that all three components of of that structure underwent dramatic transformation. I mean, you get more free market capitalism as opposed to corporate capitalism. You get the rise of individual thinking as opposed to sort of structures of, of relying on bureaucracies and experts. And you also get an open rejection of the rules. So all of these uh, sets of assumptions change. And for men like Buckley and Mailer and millions of other Americans, it takes them a long time to recalibrate to a new set of assumptions about American life. This happens in the United States every 50 years or something like that, where the predominant prevailing set of assumptions goes goes through a transformation. And this was one such moment. So both of them start to rethink what it is that America can do and what America can be. And this is where your second point comes up, which is American society leaves behind the rules and pick the rules-based society, as as I call it, and and becomes what I call the rights-based society, where everybody has a right to do something, whether that's marching the streets against rises in property taxes as they're doing in California in the latter 1970s. With Prop 13, or march in the streets against nuclear weapons as people on the left are doing. So everybody has their own point of view. And what changes there, you hinted at it in your question, what changes there is maybe the ability of intellectuals to feel as though they can speak for the entirety of the nation. People look at the intellectuals of the 1950s and early 1960s, and they look at them as... This foregone, this 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 rapidly departed day when the intellectuals were there, providing us with some sort of order about what was going on, there to lead us, and now we have no more intellectuals. And maybe that's true, maybe that's not true. But one of the things that has changed is abil- Is intellectuals feel much more constrained in their ability to talk for America? So look at Mailer and Buckley, for instance. Both of these guys were white. They were both Ivy League educated males. They both had a very comfortable economic situation, and yet they still felt like they could speak to the whole of the nation. They knew, as well as anybody else, what was good for the country as a whole. And lots of other white, highly educated males felt that they could do the same thing. After the sort of rights revolution, after the transformation from a rules-based to a rights-based society... People don't necessarily feel like they want to listen to white Ivy League educated males as those who are going to talk for the nation. And so it becomes much more difficult for an intellectual to be honest with himself or herself and say, I can speak on behalf of the nation. So that's the major transformation that's happened in our intellectual life.
1: And also, uh, intellectuals often serve as critics of the, the... the rules, whatever is the status quo, whatever is accepted. And uh, if that goes away and it's a right space, then there's not even something uh, concrete that you can go after. The liberal liberal consensus is not there to go after. What do you go after? I mean, which part? Because it's all very fragmented.
0: Well, I think that's a problem of the left, especially right now, is what, what do you go after? How do you radicalize American society in the way that the left wants to? The right has pretty much beat a steady drum to attack bureaucracy, to limit the imposition of taxes, these kinds of things. And that's been a pretty consistent call for the right. But as the left, which by definition, honors m- multiple voices, honors multiculturalism, honors the fact that we are a pluralistic society, how do you find a center uh, in which you can organize uh, a, a political opposition that has substantial legs, so what is the takeaway
1: with this? Because you said you started this book because you were wanting you were really looking for a way to explain or think about the sixties. Uh, what have you concluded, or what is this takeaway for us as the reader as we read this?
0: okay, yeah, great question. I love these questions the, um, the what I learned, and I said at the beginning, as you mentioned that I didn't really have a conceptual way to understand the 60s. Nothing really clicked in my mind as saying, oh, that's how we can understand all of these movements, women's movement, black power movement, the Native American movement. I mean, how do you understand all of these movements? And what happened in the 60s was a change in the set of assumptions that Americans lived by. I articulated the set of assumptions already that developed in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s that Mailer and Buckley tried to challenge from the left and right. And the latter 1960s, I love using Mailer and Buckley's language because they were such sort of – the language that they used was there was a birthing process of a new order. New sets of assumptions emerged in the early 1970s, and they understood the violence of the latter 1960s as violent birthing pangs. And then when the baby gets born, they don't necessarily recognize the baby uh, you know, Mailer says multiple times, America is heavy with birth and there's no doubt birth is going to happen. But what that baby will look like, we don't know. I mean, that's how he ends Armies of the Night, one of his most famous books from 1968. And, and, and uh, Buckley, for his part, always talks about midwifing a transformation. So they use this language of birth. So what happens in the 60s is there's this change in the set of assumptions, the predominant things that most Americans believe in that are central goes under a dramatic transformation. And so by the end of the book, I spend some time talking about the new set of assumptions that we live with in the 1970s onward. And I think by recognizing the sets of assumptions, we can live more fulfilling, prosperous lives in America, and we can challenge the sets of assumptions a little more uh, intelligently. And one of the big takeaways and one of the, the sort of things that unifies the new sets of assumptions is that... Um, We live in a society today that is a result of the latter 1960s and early 1970s that is premised in a lot of ways on freedom. And a lot of people, a lot of historians especially, were just as guilty as everybody. They used to look at the 60s and see it as a triumph of the left, as when the left wing changed American culture. Now we can wear miniskirts and use bad words and have birth control. So the left wins the 1960s. And then with the... rise of George W. Bush, basically, a lot of historians look back to this, this right wing, where does the right get born? And they look at Barry Goldwater and they look at William F. Buckley and they say the 60s wasn't the birth of the right, I mean the left, the 60s was the birth of the right. And that's how we need to understand the 60s. And so my sense is that what happens in the 60s is it's not the victory of the left or of the right, but it's the victory of freedom. And the left and the right really cherry pick where they want to devote their energy. So now when it comes to culture and the rules, the left indisputably won, and we are much freer to grow our hair long if we're men, to wear any kinds of shoes. We no longer have to wear a button-up shirt with a collar and tie. We don't always uh, address adults as Mister and Misses. And on the on, on the right, freedom won again. We no longer have a strong bureaucracy. We have a free. We believe in free markets where free enterprise triumphs. It was Bill Clinton, the Democrat, of course, who said the era of big government is over. Individual entrepreneurs are prioritized in our tax structure, things like that. So if we understand the 60s to be not a time when the left won or the right one, but when freedom won, we can understand our politics a little bit better today. And I think that we're beginning to find some language in which we can do that. There is a huge thirst, I sense, in American life for a recommitment to the fact that we are a society, that we are, we are a community in a lot of ways. Even if we disagree and differ and have to honor different religious beliefs, racial uh, identities, things like that, nonetheless, we all part all are part of this American project. And so we need, and I, I hear like in the language of Elizabeth Warren, for instance, uh, there's this yearning to be back to being a part of the community.
1: Right, because... Uh- the, what you're talking about, the expansion of freedom in the whole process, the notions of freedom have expanded, become broader, bigger, um, deeper, uh, more radical in a, in a certain way. Um, there's something lost also in that. Absolutely. And and, yeah. that's, and, and people are feeling, feeling it. Yeah. We're yeah. feeling what we have lost in gaining all this uh, both uh, individual – you know, uh, social freedoms and also poli- uh, also gaining sexual all the sexual freedoms, all the econ- and e- economic freedoms.
0: What, let, me, let, th- me jump on, let me jump in right there and say, yes, there has been something lost, but that shouldn't make us want to go back to the 1950s when black people couldn't vote in large parts of America, well, when women were treated <laughs> as second-class citizens. And so, the project for us today is to find to honor those voices that came out in the nineteen sixties demanding more freedom, and yet find a way to honor those voices while still recognizing the fact that we are part of a community, that we are part of a greater whole. And I think that's a very difficult challenge. I think that's one of the central challenges that we have today in our society.
1: Okay, Kevin, I have one more question for you. Uh, what are you working on now? Ah,
0: great question. I have a couple projects in mind, um, one of which stems from writing this book. Um, As you know, since you read it, James Baldwin is a minor character in this book. And the more I read of James Baldwin, the more I really fell in love with him, just as a thinker, as a writer, as a contrarian personality as someone who was able to engage American society and talk to the American community as a whole while being outside that sort of white Ivy League educated hetero patriarchal normative society. So there might be something in store with James Baldwin. The other project that I'm exploring right now has to do with the rise of income inequality in American life, which everybody's talking about but I'm curious to know how an intellectual history of that might be written. What are the ideas that allow it to happen? Uh, what are the ideas that need to be present in order for people to be okay with this kind of inequality? Um, and a question that I also have is, yes, we have income inequality, and that we all assume that to be a bad thing, and I don't disagree. But I'm curious to know if the bottom of the incoming of inequality is how low that is. So I want to explore these kinds of questions uh, from an intellectual historian's perspective. And I think, I think there's something interesting to be said there, um, but I haven't dug deep enough to figure out where that story is going to go.
1: Well, thank you, Kevin. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of new books in American studies. I would enjoy hearing from you. Drop me a line at newbooks.americastudies at gmail.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger.